Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And my guest today is Mike Lynn Steele, Professor at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at, J- excuse me, at Brigham Young University. Today we'll discuss her new article, Indigenous Resistance, forthcoming in the Arizona Law Review. So thanks and welcome to the podcast, Michael Lynn. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about this paper with you today. And um, it's really interesting discussion of resilience theory and these really big gaps um, in resilience theory and scholarship, in particular, your your paper on indigenous resilience um, really covers that incredibly well. And when I read this, I see that, you know, you, you state that indigenous resilience has really unique characteristics that allow communities to continue to function, um, even in spite of all kinds of onslaughts, be they political, um, cultural, and still remain with their identities intact. So just to situate our listeners who might not know what I'm talking about when we're talking about resilience, what do you mean by resilience in this context? Yeah, I I think about it as the ability of organizations, institutions, individuals uh, to withstand uh, trauma, withstand uh, change, and still maintain their essential identity. It's it's uh, in resilience theory. Uh, that's that's the common definition that we're usually working with. Is you're able to maintain your essential identity and continue even though circumstances around you have changed um, and you're able to adapt to those circumstances. Great. So I I wanted to talk just about an experience that you described really early in the article um, about a conversation that you had with an elementary school student, I believe in the 1990s. Yeah. I was really kind of shocked to read this and kind of try to situate myself in my shoes. Um, could you explain for us just what that interaction was and how that influenced you to getting to the point of writing this paper? Yeah. So whatever age it is when they learn about the tribes of their state and they learn about state history, um, that was the age of this uh, young person. I think it must have been around the sixth, a sixth grader. And uh, her dad was a friend of mine and he said he wanted to Uh, could his daughter interview me for her paper, which she was writing about the Seneca, one of the tribes in uh, what is currently New York. And I'm Seneca. I grew up on the Cattaraugus Reservation near Buffalo. And so I was pleased to field this little girl's questions about the Seneca. And what she said has really stayed with me because it so encapsulates the experience of um, how I think our educational system deals with tribes and uh, consigning tribes to a sort of romanticized uh, historic past. She said her first question was, when you were a Seneca Indian, what was that like? Um, When you were? (laughs) Yes, when you were a Seneca Indian. She said, what did you wear? What did you eat? And that really conveyed to me that the way we're teaching young people about tribes and tribalism, uh, including perhaps that sixth grade project, is they make a diorama of historical dwellings. They look at traditional clothing, and those things are not irrelevant, but they don't quite, they don't capture and they don't convey 
the continuing vitality of tribal peoples and tribal nations and tribal culture. It sort of represents a, a sort of erasure of that culture and people in the present day, doesn't it? I feel like I've seen dioramas like those in yeah. um, museums of natural history exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Um, as it, and, you know, it, it's part of, you know, the way federal tribal relations are handled in the Department of Interior as though the tribes are sort of a natural resource, um, like lands and minerals and fish and wildlife. <laughs> and so uh, it's the way we frame and talk about these things matters for the way uh, children understand what a tribe is and what tribal people are, and including the way tribal children can be asked to view themselves. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm sure that this sixth grader wasn't intending to participate in some sort of erasure of peoples or no. anything. But, you know, this erasure on sort of a, a federal government level, at the very least, it, it isn't some sort of accidental or unintentional thing, is it? No, I think one of the things that I, I think doesn't get quite understood clearly and that comes as a pr surprise in some ways to my students who take federal Indian law is that the doctrine of tribal sovereignty by which tribes are uh, continuing sovereigns, pre-constitutional sovereigns, self-governing peoples, um, they don't have complete sovereignty under the law of the United States. They are what Justice John Marshall called uh, domestic dependent nations. They are quasi-sovereigns, you might say, diminished sovereigns in some regards with, re with respect to what we call external sovereignty. Um, it is, you know, the law of the United States may not permit a tribe to negotiate a treaty with a foreign country or something like that. Uh, but there is an aspect of sovereignty that continues. And that doctrine of tribal sovereignty uh, is not something that the tribes have recently created and imposed on the United States. In fact, the United States needed uh, to rely on the sovereignty of the tribes for its own economic and political purposes uh, at the founding. And uh, while that was very convenient for the United States, they exploited that doctrine of sovereignty um, at the beginning. Uh, that doctrine is sometimes less convenient for the United States, and uh, sometimes the United States seems poised to walk away from that uh, doctrine by which they hold much of the resources of the nation. But, you know, I think also, and I saw this reading your paper, there were even you know, explicit um, statements by, you know, people in Congress or even Teddy Roosevelt that, yes, we are intentionally trying to destroy cultures and um, really tried to force assimilation on Native peoples and everything too, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, the policy of the United States toward the tribes, uh, while at the beginning, as I said, they needed the tribes to be sovereigns with whom they could uh, conclude treaties negotiate treaties, negotiate peace, form uh, political and and military alliances uh, from whom they could um, acquire legal title to land, all those principles. I think the expectation of the founders was that what they called the Indian problem would go away, that uh, George Washington talked about 
um, the tribes that they would like the wolf, the savage would, you know, flee before encroaching society, just as wolves sort of leave an area as it gets, uh, as it gets populated and, and colonized, that the savage, meaning the native people would do the same. And he thought they would sort of just flee into the West and, and it, the problem would take care of itself. When the tribes did not die out and flee, according to plan, the policy of the United States did evolve to say, well, we will um, bless them with our superior civilization, our superior religion, and we will teach them to farm, which is a higher and better use of land than than their subsistence hunting. Um, and we, we will compel them uh, to sort of adopt our superior lifestyle, the sort of the yeoman farmer that Thomas Jefferson uh, admired. If you could see me right now, you'd see me shaking my head and rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of these plans that, okay, this sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. problem, quote unquote, will yeah. sort itself out if there's yeah. enough interference from the government and if life is made unpleasant enough. Yeah. Um, what's been amazing is not seeing these, you know, communities really, you mm-hmm. know, kind of bend down to this sort of subjugation. There is a sort of resilience that you cover that has unique mm-hmm. characteristics that allow these communities and these nations to continue to function with their identities intact. That's really what prompted this paper is wondering how is it that the tribes withstood the military pressure, the overwhelming cultural pressure, the the uh, pressure of colonization, how is there such a thing as a Native American tribe and a Native American person in the 21st century when that was not the plan, right? They, they did everything from uh, starvation to, um, you know, the forced marches and uh, relocating uh, and prohibiting the religion, prohibiting the dancing, prohibiting from uh, growing their hair or painting their faces. That was 1903 when the order came down from, I mean, that's not, you know, ancient history. It's uh, 1903, the order still came down, uh, no dancing, no, you know, worshiping your, um, you know, your false deities, etc. cetera. Uh, you can't practice the, these pagan religions. And how did the tribes survive as individuals and as entities when the the money and the policy and the military of the United States was intended to force assimilation. That was Theodore Roosevelt's policy. The um, General Allotment Act was meant to shake the lands that were still held by the tribes loose of their uh, communal holdings, their tribal affiliation, and it was meant to shake the people loose of their tribal affiliation as well. And that was not the end of it. That same policy um, came back in the 1950s with a termination policy where the policy of the federal government was to endeavor to terminate the federal tribal trust relationship and terminate the communal interest in land of tribes and compel the tribal members to just assimilate. And it still didn't work. And yeah, I'm still shocked at even, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's, the, the way he, he conceived of this is, I think, you know, I saw this in your paper, mm-hmm. uh, a pulverizing engine to break mm-hmm. up the tribal mass, like like so yeah. much gravel or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it, it's I, horrible. To- what I think is 
uh, what I think most Americans don't appreciate is that the pulverizing engine, he meant the landmass, right, to break up the tribal landmass, whatever after all of the treaty era and the renegotiating and renegotiating and constraining the tribes to smaller and smaller territories where they could not survive very well. Um, they certainly couldn't thrive. Uh, and they got the worst of the land so that it would free up the land for the, the more um, arable land was freed up for settlers to have at a very cut rate price, right? The United States citizens did not sort of pay fair market value for all the land, which um, is underpins their wealth. They basically, you know, uh, took it from the tribes, but it had the effect of trying to deprive the tribes of a homeland and of an identity and a community had the effect. And this is one of the things I say in the paper is that it had the effect of a great pulverizing engine on tribal families and communities as well. Um, and yet they have reconstituted and they have, uh, they have endured and remain. So I want to talk about resilience theory in general and, I was reading your description of sort of sociological resilience theory, and I wanted to just discuss with you what exactly is the difference between this concept of resilience versus robustness or recovery? Yeah, so I think resilience refers to And I don't mean to say that resilience is always a good thing, right? Viruses are resilient sometimes, right? But yeah. uh, the ability to continue on as your, with your essential characteristics intact. And so I think um, it needs to be differentiated from other sorts of, well, you reconstituted, but you're really not the same thing, or... Um, you're just a, a hardened asset, like they say. Sometimes talk about in the in the book um, why things bounce back. Um, robustness as being sort of um, like the pyramids, right? They they don't change and adapt, but they endure. That's robustness. Um, but I think with the tribes, um, they have been able to adapt without forfeiting their essential. Quality, which is that of a sovereign community with a, a, a culture. The culture is not exactly the same as it was in the 1800s. No one's is. Mm-hmm. Culture is vibrant. Culture is fluid. Um, but the essential elements are still there, and the um, the links as a, as a people are are still there. So there, there's more to resilience, you know, in that. There's sort of an endurance aspect, and an, but also an adaptivity and an ability to survive adversities. Then, yeah, I'm like okay, I, I, so you're not destroyed by adversity. Um, you're not fundamentally changed by adversity in a way that you're a new thing, um, but you are able to reconstitute with your essential characteristics intact. And of course, different um, native communities, different nations have come under all sorts of attacks. And you have a very fascinating history of the different sorts of attacks that um, 
Native peoples have actually come come under fire for all sorts of, in all sorts of manners and in different eras um, yeah. throughout the history of, of like European contact with them to the present mm-hmm. day. So, could you maybe give us just a rundown of these sort of different eras for those of you who might for the, those of the listeners who might not mm-hmm. be familiar with you know Indian law and the history? Yeah. Of that. So, initially. Uh, there was sort of a separatism, uh, the era of treaty making, recognizing, acknowledging uh, the separate sovereignty of the tribes. Um, and in 1879, Congress said, we're not going to um, approve any more treaties. We're not going to fund any more treaties with tribes. So treaty making ended. And the policy of the United States really shifted to allotment, meaning whatever reservation territories were left, Let's see if we can't shake the tribes loose of their hold on that, break everything up into individual parcels of land held in fee rather than in trust. Um, and of course, if they're held in fee, they're defeasible. You can that you know you can tax them, you can repossess them, you can get loans against them, uh, you can transfer them. Uh, the tribes had not wanted that; they wanted the shared interest in land that was uh, land held in trust for the tribe. And uh, so that was the resistance of the allotment era, the allotment policies and the forced assimilation, the uh, especially the wholesale removal of Indian children from their families and cultures to be uh, educated uh, in by, by uh, Christian missionaries educated in boarding schools. Uh, whereas uh Andrew Jackson uh, or someone around his era was said to have uh, subscribed to the only good Indian is a dead Indian philosophy. The founder of the boarding school said, we must kill the Indian to save the man. And so the specific purpose was to uh, re- separate and re-educate the children uh, to, to alienate them from their culture, from their language. And that's not so long ago. My grandma and uh, my great grandmas went to boarding schools where they were forbidden to speak the language um, and taught, you know, it wasn't like they wanted these children to just thrive. They were being taught to be uh, domestic servants. They were being sort of farmed out to be the help. And um, uh, they were being given very limited educations, but the, so the primary focus of their education was uh, to alienate them from their tribal culture. And that has had a devastating effect on tribal families that we continue to see play out in the historical trauma and in some of the ways that uh, tribal families are still struggling uh, to cope with the deep, deep wounds uh, inflicted by that era. So Um, nowadays the federal government purports to respect the right of self-government of tribes and, um, you know, the the greater sovereignty and autonomy and everything. is there really any reason to trust at all that this will actually be the policy that is abided by or that it will stay in place long term? Well, that was, again, it's a good question. It's part of what motivated me to think about this paper is that when you see the policy pendulum swing so wildly between the United States sort of accepting and I guess permitting in its law and its legal uh, regime 
the sovereignty and separateness of tribes, and then swinging wildly to, no, everyone has to assimilate, and we don't want this these separate sovereigns, whatever the scope of their sovereignty. Um, I think it is a mistake for uh, those who are advocates for tribal peoples to think that now that we have arrived in the era of self-determination, which began with a message from President Nixon to the Congress declaring the policy of the United States to be self-government and self-determination, it's a mistake to suppose that that pendulum won't swing back at some point. And I mean, I, I think I say this in the paper, but I saw uh, a quote from Representative, or no, sorry, Senator Rand Paul, uh, of Kentucky saying that, you know, the problem with the tribes is that they never assimilated. And if they had just assimilated, you know, things would be so much better, which shows a tremendous lack of historical knowledge and understanding. And, you know, it shows me that we're not that far away from that pendulum swinging the political winds blow another way. And suddenly people think, well, what is all the, and, and, and I don't think it's happening necessarily in the Congress, uh, but I think that there are political forces that would like to see tribalism uh, defeated in the courts as some kind of a special separate rights that may be race-based, even though the law of the United States says that membership in a tribe is a political category that doesn't implicate the 14th Amendment. They, there are those who are arguing in courts right now, including um, in challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, Mm -hmm. that this is an impermissible race-based classification, and that Title 25 of the United States, which is called Indians, and it is the laws that have been made uh, with regard to the federal government's relationship to tribes, that that whole that whole uh, title is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, Fifth Amendment, uh, because it's actually a racial classification uh, about which the the Congress can't uh, legislate. So I want to talk about the concept of plenary power and, you know, the the sort of connection with indigenous resilience and um, have tribes been able to use this doctrine of, you know, the plenary power and, um, in particular, the domestic dependent nation doctrines mm-hmm. to their benefit ever? Uh, yes, I think they can. And that sort of implicates a, a paper I did a couple years ago that came out in the UCLA Law Review uh, called Political Questions, Plenary Power and Sovereignty in Indian Affairs, part of a series of papers that I wrote contemplating where the Indian affairs power in the federal government to the extent they have it where it resides, who exercises it, and what its limits might be. Congress exercises what is called plenary power over the tribes. Their their power and authority over tribes is not necessarily tied to any text in the Constitution. Uh, There is an Indian Commerce Clause, uh, but uh, the scope of plenary power is much broader than commerce. There's a treaty power of the executive and the, the Congress affirms treaties. Um, tribes are mentioned uh, as with with other sovereigns in the Commerce Clause, in that they are mentioned in the Commerce Clause with foreign nations, states, and Indian tribes are sort of in a category of sovereigns with whom the United States can uh, regulate commerce. And so, uh, the Plenary Power Doctrine has its roots as sort of just a what. Um, Justice Breyer called in a 2004 decision, Laura versus uh, United States, 
a concomitant of nationality, that somehow just the fact of nationhood confers upon that nation a power to a broad power, uh, untethered to uh, uh, limiting language in the Constitution, um, a broad pre-constitutional power, concomitant of nationality. And so, you know, what are the limits on plenary power? Uh, probably other aspects of the Constitution. You can't effect a taking, for example, in violation of the Fifth Amendment with your plenary power. Um, the courts have sort of stood down on many questions of political questions or or uh, the plenary power of Congress. And so you don't really have much recourse to the courts. Um, and so is there a way to sort of, in a jujitsu move, sort of use that plenary power um, to the benefit of tribes? And I think tribes have done um, well in things like the Indian Child Welfare Act and um, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. Uh, those are examples of where Congress has exercised its plenary power uh, to the benefit of tribes. And I think those are amazing examples of the resilience that you talk about having to being forced to adapt to really dire circumstances and even trying to figure out and successfully figuring out how do we use these um, in a successful way and how do we even thrive in this sort of adversity. And I want to talk real quick about a case that came down just yesterday that you made me aware of, um, the Herrera case. Could you let our listeners know just what was going on in that and how that ended up getting um, decided? Yeah. So this is sort of breaking news, right, in the world of federal Indian law. Um, Clavin Herrera was a member of the Crow tribe of Montana. He was with his family hunting elk. Uh, he began his hunt in Montana on territory of the Crow Reservation, um, but in pursuit of the elk, ended up in Wyoming in the Bighorn National Forest, and where he uh, was able to take the elk. He was later charged by the state of Wyoming with violating. He didn't have a license from Wyoming and violating their season or something, and he received a fine of eight thousand um, dollars. And so the question was, the treaty. Uh, the, uh, with the Crow tribe, the, the latest treaty, right, had reserved for them their, the land that is, that is their reservation in Montana, but it had not said anything to terminate their hunting and fishing rights. I, I, I better just say hunting because I'm not sure about their fishing rights, but mm -hmm. their hunting rights in former reservation territories. And so one of the doctrines of how we construe and understand the legal effects of a tribal treaty is that everything that is not specifically terminated by the language of a treaty is presumed to endure. And so because the latest treaty had not extinguished the hunting rights of the Crow tribe in their former territories, it had it had shrunk the boundaries of the reservation, but it did not shrink their hunting rights in what was called unoccupied lands of the United States. Mr. Herrera argued that he had a treaty right to hunt in these former territories of the tribe. Mm -hmm. And Wyoming argued that that treaty had effectively been abrogated by its admission to the Union. 
and another doctrine of federal Indian law, what we call the canons of construction of federal Indian law, mm-hmm. is that um, we don't impliedly abrogate a treaty. The United States can unilaterally change the terms of a treaty, apparently. That's, that's what the Supreme Court has Absolutely. said. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But they need to be clear that that's what they're doing, or they at least need to have thought about and um, considered that what they're doing has some effect on treaty rights. And so we don't usually say that treaty rights get changed or abrogated or limited by implication. And so the central question was whether or not um, Wyoming had, uh, the Wyoming's admission to the Union had uh, affected or changed the terms of the treaty by implication. Uh, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's the basics of it. And um, by a five to four vote yesterday with Justice Gorsuch uh, joining uh, what we would call his more liberal colleagues uh, in support of the treaty, in support of the treaty canons, the way we understand and read treaties and the way we understand that treaties get changed um, because that treaty had not been explicitly changed, the treaty right to hunt, um, uh, Mr. Herrera's treaty right may have continued. Now, what I'm not totally clear on yet, and I have to go back and look at this, is um, that unoccupied lands part, right? And so there is some question of whether the land was considered occupied by the um, uh, establishment of a, of, of a national forest there. Um, but again, another canon of the treaty construction that looks like went away for Mr. Herrera was that we read treaties and construe and understand their terms the way the tribes would have understood them. And that at the time the treaty was made, the tribes would have understood occupied to mean houses and settlement. And that was not the case with the Bighorn National Forest. So it looks like a really great victory for the canons of construction and for the vindication of treaty rights. Uh, It's a huge surprise in many ways because the pattern that we've seen in the Supreme Court is that uh, they've grown less um, deferential to treaty rights and to tribe tribal rights in general, more suspicious of tribal sovereignty, uh, and in particular um, when there is a state who okay. has is on the other side of the V. So um, I was pleased to see it. Uh, this is another a second really in a really strong term for treaty rights so far where there was a case out of Washington state where again, Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence that underscored the vitality of the treaty canons of construction and said, we can't just read out of the treaty terms that later become inconvenient to us. Yeah, this is a really exciting case. And from what I understand, it's incredibly rare to prevail against a state, especially. So it'll be interesting to see um, where this goes from here. It will. And it actually is teed up in another case um, that is still coming out of this term uh, out of Oklahoma, uh, where, uh, you know, the consequence of reading uh, the, the treaty may be that a lot of the tribal, the a lot of the territory in Oklahoma uh, actually still belongs to the tribes. And so we'll see what the Supreme Court does there and whether this new coalition in favor of um, vindicating the treaties holds for that question. Great. So 
I want to take the last few minutes to talk about, you know, even just situating these recent victories in, in sort of this context of indigenous resilience. And I found your um, your discussion of the Haudenosaunee um, Confederacy really fascinating here and some of the principles that the Haudenosaunee people have relied on through hundreds of years um, really provide a real life example, like an active like today example of resilience in action. Um, so can you tell me about some of those principles and, you know, what they are supposed to represent and how they function? Yeah, well, here's, here's an example of, you know, I, I was framing this paper as um, <clears throat> what uh, resilience theory has to teach tribes as they face new emerging threats and I took the paper to UC Irvine for a faculty workshop, and they were so helpful and thoughtful and smart, and they really <laughs> helped me understand that I needed to reframe this paper as, what do the tribes have to teach resilience theory? And that was critical development in this in my thinking about this paper, and um, that really helped me to see that, indeed, there are indigenous principles that have animated the resilience, the unlikely continuity of the tribes as entities into the 21st century. And I felt most qualified. So I pronounce it Haudenosaunee, but, you know, I don't know if either of us is pronouncing it correctly, to be frank. It's, uh, but uh, this one of the consequences of uh, uh, being robbed of language here, but uh that we are sometimes called the Iroquois. The Seneca is one of those, and that's me, right? I'm Seneca. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I could most ably speak about those principles that I thought had animated Haudenosaunee or Iroquois resilience, those indigenous principles. What, what did they turn to when war and starvation and, uh, you know, encroaching culture um, threatened their existence, what principles did they cling to? And so um, I turned to those indigenous principles to try to understand how they had survived. And I think every tribe will have these kinds of principles in their story. And my hope would be that this would launch a conversation where other uh, students of indigenous culture, other indigenous scholars might look to those principles as we prepare for coming threats. And so one of those principles that I found, uh, this is a common principle, it's not unique to us, but it is uh, prominent with us is the seven generations principle that in the founding of the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, um, the representatives to that representative body were charged with um, responsibility for the consequences of their choices on the next seven generations, that they were required to take the long view in their governing. How do we set up a system that will endure and that will not bring negative consequences on coming generations, even seven generations away, um, which I think is about 120 years, something like something that, right? Like that, I think, yeah. And yeah. so, um, and one thing I found very interesting is that the you could be removed from service to that representative body um, by clan mothers or grandmothers who had the power and their criteria was that if you were acting in self-interest. So they had these dual checks in, built into the system that the govern, governors, those who were responsible for governance of the people, 
were not only forbidden from acting in self-interest, but they were required by the law to take the long view and to be responsible for seven generations of consequences. That changes decision-making. Yeah, drastically, um, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it changes the way you think about how you respond to problems. It calms, you know, it, it, it can calm um, uh, heated arguments and it can uh, give you a long-term perspective um, where you are, your bias is toward what is the solution that is going to help us best endure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think if you take that principle where you're thinking seven, seven generations ahead, and, you know, we were just saying that that's looking ahead about 120 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think keeping that sort of perspective in mind would really address how we, you know, just as you know, uh, n- not just the, you know, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, mm-hmm. but even just like the larger, say, the, the entire country, how we yes. address cl- things like climate change, exactly. you know, crises in government, care for the vulnerable, like you've said in yeah. your paper. Um, right. I think we prize this sort of immediate profit making sort of motive as much or anything. Or the next election in two years or six years, mm-hmm. right? Or four years. And instead we're looking at 120 years away and what are the consequences of my choices today on that instead of what are the concentra- consequences of my vote on the, you know, the next poll cycle or the next fundraising cycle. Yeah. So um, I think there's some errant incentives and I do think um, again, going back to the idea that the tribes have something to teach um, if people are interested um, in in the story of their survival, and likely though it was, you know, I think one of the most surprising things for, I mean, along with maybe iPhones and Donald Trump, one of the most surprising things to the founders, should they find themselves uh, in the 21st century, would be the continuing existence of tribes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but we don't have that kind of time, unfortunately. Um, but thank you so much. And um, yeah, I'd look forward to hopefully talking with you and interviewing you again real soon, because I'm sure there'll be a series of papers that come from this as well. Thanks for inviting me and um, giving me a, a chance to talk about um you know, what I admire so much about about the tribes and what I think is an important story for our nation. And yes, for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. It's a Jeep. Yes, it's a Jeep. Jumping Jeepers. What a Jeep. It's the surprise of the year from Willie's Overland, builder of the mighty Jeep. It's the Jeep Station Wagon, a double utility family and business car that goes far beyond conventional station wagon design. The Jeep Station Wagon is new, brand new, planned for wider usefulness, real riding comfort, and top economy. Check these three big features. One, all steel body and top. At last, a practical, safer body with lasting finish. 
Two, seven adult size seats. Marvelous. And loads of carrying space, too. Three, the world-famous Jeep engine. Any veteran knows the power and stamina of the Jeep engine. The Jeep station wagon meets the needs of... Surveyors, golf players, tin roofers, more proofers, land foremen, our dormant church, fast scout masters, repairmen, club chairmen, coal miners, designers. Jumping jeepers! What a Jeep! It's the car for you, too. See the Jeep station wagon now at Willie's Overland Dealers. Now your local announcer will tell you where you may see and buy the new Willie's Jeep. But now it's time for the Blue Sky Boys, and here's your master of ceremonies, Bill Bolick. 